Welcome to Ballpark Banter, a podcast dedicated to exploring the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball. We're a pair of ballpark gurus who've been to every MLB stadium and now want to take you through what it's like to catch a game at each. On this show, each ballpark gets its own episode where we'll explore its history and then dive deep into the facts, figures, and fun anecdotes that make it unique. Follow us on social at Ballpark Banter for regular doses of ballpark trivia and visit ballparkbanterpodcast.com for more information. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballpark Banter where we explore the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball. One by one in the same order as when we saw them all one summer with our good friends. Eternal shout out as always every episode to Kendall, Jack, and Ruben. My name is Travis Parker-Smith. And with me, as he is on every episode, is my friend and fellow ballpark guru, Kellen Larson. And today, we are heading to Kansas City to explore Kauffman Stadium, the home of the Royals. Kellen, I start every episode like this. Before we dive into the fast facts of this ballpark, before we go through its history and take you around the bases, what is the first thing you think of when you think of Kauffman Stadium? I think Kauffman has a cool shape to it. It's very symmetrical, and it's got this kind of spaceship-looking cantilever on the third deck in the infield. I think it looks kind of cool, and you know, it's got a unique look to it without without really a lot of high seating as uh, in the outfield as the decks kind of taper down towards towards the foul poles. We're going to talk a lot about this unique design of Kaufman and why it kind of looks different than any other ballparks, and how this park is. Suddenly pretty important in the timeline of ballpark history, ballpark architecture, as we call it here on this podcast. Um, I think you're right. I think like driving through this part of the state of Missouri, Kaufman and its neighbor Arrowhead Stadium kind of emerge out of the skyline, almost as you said, like a spaceship or sometimes I think like a, a cruise ship ocean liner. It's a modernist ballpark and it holds kind of a niche place in ballpark history. For me, I think the thing that I think of is the gigantic crown-shaped scoreboard in center field. Uh, we aren't going to dive into this. It's There's not too much to say other than it was once the biggest scoreboard in MLB. It's a cool shape. It's always the thing that just dominates any like outfield shot of this ballpark. We'll talk a lot about the fountain and stuff here, but this huge screen that's kind of an odd shape. Most shapes of you know big jumbotrons across the United States are like a widescreen TV, you know, to the thousandth degree. This one is pretty vertical oriented and it's it's kind of a funky attribute to this kind of funky ballpark. Yeah, it almost looks like the shape of a face. Yeah. The crown on it. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's weird. They've had to taper videos to this more vertical orientation. They're almost trend setting, kind of like as we've gotten to with other, you know, videos that are meant to be watched on your phone instead of on your television screen. So who knows? Maybe maybe the ballpark in Kansas City was trendsetting in ways other than its architecture. But before we get there, let's dive a little bit deeper and, and orient us even more. Give us the fast facts of Kauffman Stadium. The first name was Royals Stadium. It was called Royals Stadium for 20 years, from 1973 to 1993, until it was renamed after the pharmaceutical giant Ewing Kaufman who at the time was the owner of the Royals. It's very small by capacity because those higher levels don't continue from the infield out into the outfield. It has a listed capacity of just 37,903, which would make it 27th 
on the list of MLB parks. So, so fourth to last for capacity, but it has seen a crowd of up to 42,633. That was for the 1980 ALCS game two against New York. This is our first playoff game of the ticker of largest crowds that we have mentioned while exploring uh, ballparks on this podcast. That's 10 ballparks now. Um, and we've we've had a few regular season games, but perhaps surprisingly, this is the first postseason game. The crowd size you mentioned, you know, 42,600 something. That's about 5,000 more than the stated capacity of of uh, Kauffman Stadium. The reason for this was the ballpark went through some renovations and actually removed a bunch of seats since that 1980 ALCS uh, against the Yankees. And on that note, we're now going to take you through a history of this ballpark. If you look at the timeline of ballpark history, Kauffman Stadium is subtly quite unique. It was built in 1973 as a baseball-only venue, which was practically unheard of at that time. If you've listened to our History of the Ballpark episode, you'll know that the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s for what it's worth, were marked by the creation of multi-purpose stadiums, these big, monotonous venues that could hold numerous sports teams. In fact, in the three decades between 1950 and 1980, 16 multi-purpose venues were built to house MLB franchises. And within that same time frame, only a handful were built exclusively for baseball, what we call ballparks. There were four. Those were Candlestick Park, 1956, Dodger Stadium, 1962, Angel Stadium, 1964, and Kauffman, 1973. In that aforementioned History of the Ballpark episode, we also explored Arlington Stadium, which is one of MLB's forgotten venues, which would have fit into this list had it not been built far earlier and then later adapted for the Rangers. We're also going to give a shout out to another unique baseball venue called Jerry Park here in just a second. But back to those four I just mentioned, among them, both Candlestick and Angel Stadium were at one point turned into multi-purpose venues. Side note, Angel Stadium has oddly been morphed back into a ballpark. Kauffman, however, was not. This means Kauffman Stadium was the first baseball-only venue that was never a multi-purpose stadium for 29 years, between Dodger Stadium in 1962 and Guaranteed Rate Field, opened as New Comiskey in 91. In short, while everybody in MLB was doing one thing, Kauffman swam upstream and did the exact opposite. This strikes me as something that the Royals do. Occasionally, <laughs> the main example that comes to mind, you know, in my lifetime would be the the great underdog 2015 World Series where they relied on their their speed, their defense and their bullpen to to take them all the way to top the Mets. But just an interesting franchise, usually interesting teams and an interesting ballpark. And a lot of people forget that that was the second year in a row that the Royals had made it to the World Series, too. So this formula that they had developed actually got them to the Fall Classic twice, but they had lost in 2014 to San Francisco. Just hit copy and paste on the formula and wound up beating the Mets. Indeed, they are kind of a unique franchise, and maybe it stems from the uniqueness of their ballpark. Who knows? Who are we to postulate? Diving a bit deeper into the ballpark at hand, though, Kaufman's construction was part of a larger deal that was struck back in the late 1960s when the Kansas City Athletics were the baseball team in town. 
Then-Chairman Charles Finley had vowed to keep the Kansas City A's in town thanks to a proposal from Jackson County that said they would build a new sports complex on the outskirts of Kansas City. The complex, called the Truman Sports Complex, would have a football-only stadium for the Chiefs and a baseball-only stadium for the A's. This was thought to be odd and definitely fiscally irresponsible for the time, for, as I mentioned, multi-purpose venues were proving to give the best bang for your buck in terms of sports stadiums. But in 1968, this all changed. After the agreement to build a baseball-only stadium had been signed, Finley then pulled a bait-and-switch. He up and moved the A's to Oakland, where they could play in their, what was then called gorgeous, new multi-purpose stadium, the Coliseum. Rest in peace, the Oakland A's, which is obviously dominating a lot of baseball discussion these days, and represents what was going on in Kansas City. The backdoor departure of the Kansas City A's understandably drove local fans and local government nuts. And Missouri State Senator Stuart Symington, a guy who somehow wielded a ton of power, as we're going to get into here, threatened to sue Major League Baseball if they did not provide Kansas City with a team. MLB responded immediately by granting two cities an expansion team, which were set to begin in 1971. Those cities, Kansas City and Seattle. However, Stuart Symington didn't want to wait three years to have baseball return to Kansas City, so he forced MLB to move up this expansion franchise two years. This worked great for Kansas City as they were already planning to build a ballpark, but it did not work at all for Seattle, who had not yet had any time to fund a plan for a new ballpark and suddenly found itself needing to field a stadium for an MLB team with one year to plan for instead of three. Side note, because of this, the Seattle Pilots wound up playing in a shabby, perhaps appropriately titled ballpark called Six Stadium, which was old and it was located in a weird part of town and it perhaps understandably attracted very few people. So, Maybe thanks to Missouri Senator Stuart Symington, the pilots were forced into bankruptcy after one year and moved to Milwaukee. But the Royals, they stuck around, and they moved into their brand new, modernist ballpark in 1973. Now, we talked a little bit about the architecture of this ballpark, and we're going to talk a lot more about it here in just a minute. But before we get there, Kellen, how does this ballpark fit? Or maybe I'm burying the lead here. How does it not fit into Kansas City? What's its walkability score? To put it bluntly, it's the least walkable ballpark in the majors. Yeah, It's like eight miles outside of what you would call downtown Kansas City. It's immediately surrounded by giant sea of parking lots. Uh, just beyond that, surrounded by big freeways and kind of sparse suburbs. It definitely caters to the fan that's driving to the game. And for that reason, it gets a 20 on the 20 to 80 scouting scale, yeah. you know, hasn't really developed even a, a big tailgating culture such as they have at Milwaukee to kind of make use of what they do have. It basically has become the marker by which to measure all other poor walkability ballparks, like in the way that Mario Mendoza has his 200 batting line. And you might ask a struggling hitter if they are above or below the Mendoza line. Like it's hard to get to your ballpark. You might say, well, is it as bad as Kauffman stadium? (laughs) So again, it doesn't mean it's a terrible ballpark. It doesn't mean I don't want to go there and see games there and meet the fans and soak in the culture and have some barbecue. And it just means for me, it's a little harder 
to do that? The section's called the walkability section. You have to be a little bit objective at some point, and this is right. easily the least walkable ballpark. The Mendoza line is a brutal but accurate comparison while we talk about our subject at hand, which is the ballparks of, of MLB. I do I mean, wish... These days, you've got Mendoza line hitters that are still uh, still have OPS pluses over 100 and, and wars over one. So, well, you know, maybe maybe we can we can build on what we have here. Oh, and like those hitters, Kauffman Stadium has plenty of pluses to its game as well. Take out your phone and Google a picture of Kauffman Stadium. Try and get one of those aerial shots. You'll see it and Arrowhead Stadium in the same simply gigantic parking lot. You're right. It doesn't have the same tailgate culture as American Family Field in Milwaukee. I wonder if that's because it shares a lot with the Chiefs and tailgating is so ingrained in football culture, or if it's just somehow they haven't quite figured out how to cater to that crowd yet. Who knows? But inside the ballpark, it's beautiful. And there are a handful of things that you should see. With that, we're now going to take you around the bases of this ballpark, giving you three things where if you were lucky enough to go and see a game here, you should check this stuff out. Or if not, you should at least know about it. Do you dream of visiting every major league ballpark? Know someone who does? Or maybe you need a new gift idea for a baseball addict in your life? Check out Touch Em All, a book written by me, Travis Parker Smith, host of this show. Tracing the tale of four teenagers who drove a beat-up old hippie bus to all 30 parks in one summer, this memoir is a fun, easy read that's perfect for this baseball season. And it's the inspiration for this podcast. Order it online or, preferably, from your local bookstore. And head to ballparkbanterpodcast.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. Kellen, we touched on this already, but let's dive deeper. What's on first at Kauffman? It may sound strange to call Kauffman Stadium a ballpark that is now over 50 years old modernist, but when you're referencing these architectural styles, well, that's exactly what it is. Kauffman doesn't look like most ballparks. Today, MLB venues are primarily retro classic. They're inspired by Camden Yards, which transitively was inspired by the old jewel box parks like Wrigley and Fenway. But Travis, as you mentioned in the history section, Kaufman's construction came amidst the sea of multi-purpose venues, meaning it stood on its own in terms of design, with the architects, Kivett and Myers, taking on this modernist approach to build a futuristic ballpark. So if you look up a picture of Kaufman, it'll help you visualize what I'm talking about here. The stadium has an outfield concourse that's extremely low. There are very few seats beyond the outfield fences. Actually, 95% of the ballpark's seats are housed in the infield in this really large grandstand that rises up from the left field foul pole, peeks over behind home plate, and then descends back down to the right field foul pole. And it's made in this white, silver, very sleek um, arced area that looks kind of futuristic, like a spaceship. Yeah, when you think of a lot of the ballparks today, you get that traditional tiered grandstand in your mind that was popularized in the jewel box era and has been brought back during the retro classic era. Um, 
But there are a handful of other ballparks that are built in a similar fashion to Kauffman, right? Yes, the the other modernist ballparks. So Kauffman is actually loosely based on Dodger Stadium, which, as we said, was one of the most recent baseball-only venues to open before Kauffman. If you look at them both, you can definitely see some of the resemblances. So Dodger Stadium was also built with primarily white facades and these sloping grandstands that descend toward a low outfield concourse. After Kaufman, though, there's roughly like a 40-year break between modernist venues. You could make an argument for a guaranteed rate field, but really we didn't see another similar building pop up into ballpark architecture until Marlins Park, now it's now it's Lone Depot Park, was, was built in 2012. Some would say that Nationals Park has some claim to modernism, but really that's more retro modern. <laughs> and then along came Globe Life Field. And I will say, I bet whatever is coming in Las Vegas will probably take neo-modern to a whole new level. I love the descriptors of architecture or art styles. This goes way beyond ballparks, but, you know, to like traditional paintings or art interpretation where you had like the Renaissance and classic and Baroque and then you got to modern and then people were like, well, that's just the label of the time. So what comes after this? And then you get postmodern and then you get neo-modern. The same thing goes with ballpark. At some point, we're going to be in like a neo-postmodern and maybe who knows, (laughs) maybe that's what will actually be coming in Las Vegas. Or maybe we'll just go in a full circle, kind of like we did with the retro classic and wind up at the, uh, the, the wooden park era once again. Who knows? Yeah, Las Vegas might create its entire own category. An underground ballpark because they can. Hey. Rounding first and heading to second. Perhaps the most identifying trait of Kauffman Stadium is not its futuristic design or the gigantic scoreboard in center, but a massive fountain in right center field. It's huge. Stretching 322 feet wide and cascading down from the main level of the concourse to the standing room-only party porch that's located just in front of it, the fountain takes up pretty much the entirety of the right center concourse. But this ballpark was built in 1973, and water features were not a thing back then, so why is this fountain here? Well, Kansas City is known as the City of Fountains, as they constructed a plethora of them in the 1800s for passers-by to enjoy while traveling from east to west or west to east. And since then, the tradition has just kind of stuck. The Royal City Connect jerseys, in fact, honor this nickname. And of course, the gigantic fountain has been doing this for years. As I mentioned, the fountain's an original part of the ballpark. And because of this, Kauffman Stadium is regarded as the first MLB venue to have splash hits, as they were the first to incorporate a water feature into their stadium. Jury's out on this claim, though. Of the ballparks currently in use, this is certainly the case. But, and I mentioned we would talk about this park Another stadium that hardly anybody ever mentions might have the claim to this title. In 1969, so that's four years before Kauffman was built, the Montreal Expos temporarily played in a stadium called Jerry Park, which was perhaps one of the most obscure MLB venues in that it was located within a public park in the city of Montreal. Think of like putting a baseball stadium in the middle of Central Park or even smaller like your local rec center complex. This park being within a public park, a park within a park, meant that there was a public pool just beyond the outfield fence. People could like go swimming while the game was going on and they would actually not be within the stadium, unlike Chase Field. So technically, 
Jerry Park might have had a splash hit or two before Kaufman, as balls, who knows, might have flown out of there and landed in the public pool. But Jerry Park only lasted a few years, and it wasn't even originally built to house the Expos as it was, so for all intents and purposes, we'll give Kaufman the nod as the first stadium to have splash hits. And what's fun about this is Kaufman really sparked a plethora of other ballparks to follow. After the Royals Stadium, the next to incorporate a water feature was Tropicana Field with the Rays Tank, and then came Chase with the pool and Coors with more fountains and center field. You could even go as far as saying Oracle Park with its natural water feature, McCovey Cove. Would you go so far as to count the rain rooms or the shower that oh! <laughs> in appearance in Guaranteed Rate Field? The true splash hits of guaranteed right field, the shower in, in deep center field. I wonder if I wonder if any player has ever hit a ball into there. If so I I don't even know what I hope happens. Something amazing. That's one heck of a splash hit. Anyway, I digress. The 322-foot fountain at Kaufman has a funky name that's worthy of Angel Stadium's Disneyland-ish titles. They have the California Spectacular. In Kansas City, this fountain is called the Water Spectacular. And amazingly, the Water Spectacular prides itself in being the largest privately funded fountain in the world. I'm not exactly sure how that stat works, seeing as I assume the Bellagio fountains in Vegas are privately owned. But what do I know? And either way, it's a hell of a factoid regardless. So does our Water Spectacular put on a show like the Bellagio does? Of course! Like the sign of Minnie and Paul in Target Field, which, you know, lights up if there's a strike thrown, uh, the fountain at Kaufman has a variety of different displays, which are all visible before and after ball games, and often between innings. Meanwhile, the waterfalls are constantly running, which kind of adds this nice natural trickle to the otherwise traditional stadium noise. And obviously, when a Royal hits a home run or the team wins, the whole thing goes nuts. Rounding second and heading to third, Kellen, there's a pretty unique trait of Kauffman Stadium sitting on third base, is there not? Yes, the Buck O'Neill seat. We've got to go back. So originally, all the seats at Kauffman Stadium were red because that was the color of the Kansas City A's, who were supposed to be the tenants. With the Chiefs, Kansas City was one of those cool sports cities where the teams kind of wore the same colors until the A's left and the Royals showed up in their blue and gold. So in 2007, during a series of renovations, the seats were changed to blue to properly reflect the color of the Royals. That is, all seats were changed except for one. Right behind home plate, the chair in section 127, row C, seat 9, remains the original red color from the ballpark's olden days. That seat is called the Buck O'Neill seat. This was really cool. Every game, the Royals honor nominations from the local communities for a person to sit in the seat, selecting someone who best embodies the spirit of Buck O'Neill. So for those who might not know, who was Buck O'Neill? Yes, Buck O'Neill is a major figure in Kansas City and in American and baseball history. He played in the Negro Leagues for the, the famed Kansas City Monarchs. He had a decent career as a first baseman, but after retiring as a player, he became the coach for the Monarchs, where he coached Ernie Banks. Then eventually he became a scout for the Chicago Cubs, where he's revered as the guy who signed future Hall of Famer Lou Brock. I wonder if he's like following Ernie Banks in, in that career path or 
if it's happenstance. He then got a coaching gig for the Cubs and became the first black coach ever in Major League Baseball. Many might think Frank Robinson holds this title. Frank Robinson was the first black manager. Uh, Buck O'Neill, the first black coach in Major League Baseball. So in 1988, O'Neill moved back to Kansas City as a scout. And most importantly, he led the efforts to establish the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, of which he served as chairman until he died at the age of 94 in 2006. One of the best factoids about Buck O'Neill is that he was best of friends with Ichiro Suzuki. I love this. And he would always visit with Ichiro when the Mariners went to Kansas City to play the Royals. Ichiro still talks about O'Neill to this day. He reveres him as a man who had this unprecedented insight into the game on the field and off the field. And if you want another wild Ichiro Suzuki quote about Kansas City, go and Google Ichiro Suzuki, Kansas City, Bob Costas interview. You're not prepared for what you're about to see. That Bob Costas laugh is seared into my brain. (laughs) Takes him by surprise, I'll tell you that. Buck O'Neill, a fantastic character for, as you said, Kansas City baseball history and American baseball history in general. This is one of the coolest ways any baseball team, I think, pays homage to one of its legends and transitively to people who are making a difference in its own community. It's great. Yeah, we love a special seat and this one is maybe the most special. Rounding third and coming home, a final fact about Kauffman Stadium. In the middle of the sixth inning at this ballpark, all the fans used to stand up and sing along to Garth Brooks's Friends in Low Places. This tradition began in 2004 when the country music star spoke to the Royals after a heroic come-from-behind win against the White Sox on opening day and continued to attend Royals games when his tours would stop through Kansas City. However, the song was so polarizing to Royals fans, with everyone either absolutely loving it or absolutely hating it, that in 2014, the ballpark took note of this and held a contest asking what song should be played in the sixth inning. And Friends in Low Places lost to Don't Stop Believin'. But this caused its own ruckus, as the song Don't Stop Believin' references Born and Raised in South Detroit, not Kansas City. So fans erupted in anger with that. So since then, the sixth inning song is now just a rotation of tunes, and nobody seems satisfied with this choice. There have, in fact, been internet efforts to reinstate Friends in Low Places as the staple song of Kaufman's sixth inning. Will it happen? Who knows? That wraps it up for this episode of Ballpark Banter. If you're enjoying our show and want to support our work, you can buy us a hot dog at the next game we attend by heading to ballparkbanterpodcast.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the book Touch Em All by Travis Parker Smith to learn more about our story and the reason behind the order in which we explore these ballparks. Special thanks as always to Kendall Young, Jack Wilson, and Ruben Palmer for their imperative role in the inspiration of this show, and to all the fans out there who dream of catching a game in every Major League ballpark. <laughs>